Robert for playing that for us this morning. Well, this morning, I am grateful that you are here this morning. I'm glad that you have come with us to gather together for worship. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, as we'll be looking at a, a passage there this morning. As we're gathered here this morning, I don't think that it's by accident that any one of us are here. I don't think that we just happened to be here this morning, but I believe it's because of God's sovereign purpose that he has brought us here. And in fact, I really don't believe that accidents happen in our life. I believe that God is sovereignly working out his purpose throughout our lives. I don't believe it's by accident that I was born here in Somerset, Kentucky. I don't believe it's by accident that I went to Cumberland College and, uh, and met my wife there. I don't believe that it's by accident that I have uh, been brought here to be able to, to serve and worship uh, with you all. Uh, we see all throughout Scripture God's sovereign hand at work as he is bringing about his purposes in the lives of his people and, and throughout the entire world. And we're going to look at a passage this morning uh, that shows the sovereignty of God, God's purposefulness in one thing uh, that happens uh, in the life of Christ. And, and that one event that we're going to look at this morning is the calling of the disciples, the 12 disciples that Jesus calls to himself. And as we think about this, it's, it's not that Jesus just happened to pass by these men one day and say, I, I think that one might be a good guy to come follow after me. I, I think I might uh, talk to him and say, well, you want to follow me? And it didn't just happen to be that there were 12 of them. It didn't just happen to be that, that these men started to follow him. It was part of God's sovereign, divine purpose uh, for the life of Christ and for the life uh, of these men. This, you, do you understand this, that the, the calling of the 12 disciples was part of the divine plan for all of eternity. Now think about that for a second. Now, now when I start thinking about that in my feeble mind, and it starts working through that and thinking about that, it almost seems kind of crazy to me. Because think about who Jesus is. Think about the nature of who Christ is, that he is the Son of God, that he is the one who has all authority, he is the one who has all power. He is the one who is able to uh, raise the dead back to life. He is the one who is able to look and say, be well, and you'll be raised up and well again. He is the one that is able to, to call out and say, that withered hand, be made whole again. He is the one who has all ability, all authority, and all power. And so if I'm working this out in my own feeble mind and way of thinking, uh, I, I, would, I would have said, all right, now, now I'll gather around uh, 10,000 people around me at a time, and I'll go to, to the biggest coliseum or auditorium that there is at the time, we'll have 20,000 people at a time, and I'll stand and give, talk to them for an hour explaining who I am as the Christ and, and the gospel and what that is. All right, 20,000, all right, you're out, next one, come in, and just have these rotating groups of 20,000 people because he's God, he can do anything. But that's not... That's not the way he did it. That's not the way Christ came to do his ministry. He picked 12 men. 12 men who he invested in, poured his life into, and served with for about three years. Think about that. Think about it for just a moment. The divine plan for all of eternity. Jesus, Son of God, come to earth, Take 12 men and spend some time with those 12 men for about three years. Think about that for just a second, what that means. 
It was God's sovereign plan for the Son of God to come to earth, spend basically 30 years in obscurity. 30 years, we don't really have a whole lot of record of his life, of what was going on. But 30 years of his life, he spent just doing the, the normal carpenter, day-to-day stuff. And then three years he spends in ministry, going about ministering, serving, doing miracles, and all these things. But the majority of the time that we see with Christ during those three years, he's got 12 men that he's walking around with, that he's spending time with, that he's pouring himself into for those three years. It's probably not how I would have gone about it. But the life of Christ, those 30 years, were all leading up to this point that we're getting ready to talk about in Mark 3, where Jesus takes 12 men, calls them to himself to follow after him. So let's take God's word now, Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 13, and hear the word of the Lord as Jesus is calling these men to follow after him. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those who he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him, that he would send them out to preach and to have authority and to cast out demons. We'll look at the rest of it in just a moment. But I want you to listen. I want you to hear what's going on in the first part of this passage. Hear the sovereignty of God at work in this passage. Listen to it again. He went up on the mountain, and he summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12. Do you hear the sovereignty of God? Do you hear the plan of Christ within that passage? That he saw the ones that he wanted. He called to the ones that he wanted. And the ones that he desired, that he sovereignly purposed to come follow him. They came, he summoned him, and they followed after him. It's not an accident at all that these 12 men right here are following after Christ. But it's got by God's sovereign purpose from all eternity that they were called to be his disciples not an accident and I don't think it's an accident that you and I if we're believers that we also have been called to be followers that we've been called to be disciples of the living God so let's think for just a minute why was it Why was it that Jesus invested and poured his life into these 12 men? What was the purpose behind this? Why was he calling 12 men to him to follow him for these three years before he went to the cross? That's the question that we're going to be answering this morning to see why is it? What's the purpose? And as we look at that, we're also going to see what is the purpose that you and I have been called to be disciples. You see, if you are a believer, you have been called to be a disciple disciple of Christ. And it's not an accident that you are called to be a disciple. And some of the same things that these disciples were called for, the reason they were called is the same reason that you and I are called to be disciples right here, right now in 2010. So let's look at this passage. We're going to see two things, two reasons that these 12 men were called to be disciples. The first one, listen to, listen to verse 14 again. It's going to tell us what the reason is. And he appointed 12 so that they would be with him. So the first, first reason that these men are called to be disciples is so that they will be with Jesus. I want you to think about that for just a moment. To me, this is one of the most astounding statements in the book of Mark. Jesus calls these 12 men 
to be his disciples so that, this, in the Greek, this is called a purpose clause. It explains the reason for what comes before it. So the reason that Jesus calls these men is so that they will be with him. So that they will walk with him. So that they will be with him. So he will pour his life into them. This is an amazing thing. He didn't choose them because they were great speakers. He didn't choose them because they were the best of the best and the brightest of the brightest. He didn't choose them because they were the most talented. He didn't choose them because of the skills that they had. But why did he choose them? He said, I choose you. I summon you to be my disciples so that, just so that you will be with me. So that you will walk and see the Savior who has come to you. You know, in reality, there's not a whole lot to commend these men to us. There's not a whole lot as we think about these men that, that commends themselves to us to say, look, that Jesus really should have chosen these men. No, when we look at them, we don't really see the best of the best, the brightest of the brightest. Take a look back at the, at the passage. We're going to look through some of these men. Starting at verse 16, he talks about who the ones are that he chose. and says, He appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, to which he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's think about these men for just a minute. Most of these men, a lot of these men, were just average, normal fishermen. That's who Peter was. So we're not talking about uh, politicians who have sway over millions of people. We're not talking about rich businessmen who have uh, millions of dollars at their disposal to be used for the purpose of the kingdom. We're not talking about the, the greatest intellectuals who can amass a following after them and, and, and send them out. We're talking about some pretty average, ordinary Joes who were following after Jesus that he reached out to. And Peter, I mean, bless his heart, I mean, Peter is one of the, the biggest... Uh, goof-ups uh, among the disciples, and he's listed here first. Think about some of the things that Peter did. He's, he's out walking on the water, and he, he's got his eyes on Jesus, but then he takes his eyes away and starts sinking. And Peter's the guy who said, no, no, Jesus, I'm not going to let you wash my feet. Peter's the guy who says, when Jesus starts talking about how he must be crucified, he must die, Jesus says, no way! I'm not going to let that happen. And Peter's the guy who, uh, when he... Uh, uh, when Jesus is explaining some of these, these things, Jesus, Peter says, I'll never leave you. I am never going to leave you, never going to forsake you. And then what do we see happening? Jesus arrested, he's taken off, and Peter says, I don't know him. A few minutes later, I don't know him. Finally, someone else asks him, and he curses and says, I don't know him. Leave me alone. All right, that's one of the guys that Jesus calls. Someone he knows is going to betray him. Some average Joe who really doesn't have much to commend him. Bartholomew is listed there. Uh, he's, uh, he's also known as Nathaniel in, in other areas. And Bartholomew doesn't really give the best impression. When somebody first tells him about Jesus, uh, he looks at Jesus and, and says, well, can there really be anything good that comes out of Nazareth? You know, he makes a snap judgment. Well, I can't believe somebody good would come out of there. And he's talking about the Lord Jesus. And then we have Matthew. He's a tax collector. Matthew is a man who would have been hated absolutely hated by the rest of the Jews. He would have been considered a traitor because what Matthew did was he took 
the tax money from the Jews and he gave it to what they considered to be the, the evil empire, the Roman empire. And he would maybe skim a little extra off the top, charge them a little extra. So he would have been hated by people. He'd been known as a thief, a traitor, an extortionist. These, these are the men who Jesus calls to himself. But this is what's encouraging to me about this passage. This is what encourages my heart. Because God didn't choose the people who were high and lofty. God didn't choose those who had the highest degrees. God didn't choose the men who had the greatest influence. He didn't choose those who were the brightest. He even chose men who were really blew it in a lot of ways. And this is what encouraged me because Jesus didn't call them because of who they were or what they could do. Jesus called them simply because of his grace. And that is the same thing with me and you today. Jesus did not call us unto himself because of what you could do. Jesus did not call you unto himself because of who you are and how great you are. He didn't call you because of your intellect or your strength or your wisdom or any of those things. He called us because of his grace. And this is what encourages me, that he took some people who blew it and didn't have much to commend them, and he used them in an amazing and powerful way. And God does the same thing today because I guess that you're a lot like me. You're a pretty average person. I don't come from a great pedigree or I don't have great wealth or anything like that. But God has called us. Not because of what we can do or who we are. But for his purposes. So that we will be with him. And he took those average Joes and the world was changed forever through the influence and the ministry of those average Joes like Peter. Now, I want, I want you to think for just a minute about what Jesus does throughout his ministry with these men. Think for just a minute uh, how he takes them and he invests, he pours his life into them. In, in John chapter 1, you can look there sometime. John chapter 1, so, uh, some men are following Jesus and he turns around and he looks at them. These are two men that become his disciples. And he looks at them and says, what are you doing? And they say, we want, to, we want to follow after you. And he says, all right, come be with me. And he spends the rest of the day with them. And we see this kind of thing happening all throughout his ministry with him. He'll gather the crowds around him, and he'll talk to them, and he'll proclaim these great parables and these teachings. And then afterward, he'll pull the disciples aside, come, all right, come here. Now let me explain to you what I was saying to him. Now here, here's what was going on. And he'll take the disciples and he'll go off to a lonely place and he'll just take them and gather them around and, and teach them and explain to them what they're supposed to be doing and who he is. And he takes uh, these disciples and he pulls three of them aside and he says, all right, come with me up in this mountain and see what's going to happen. And they see the glory of the Christ transfigured before them. We, kind of, we see this over and over throughout the New Testament. Jesus pouring his life into them so that they will actually know him. He doesn't call us because of who we are, but he calls us so that we will know him and live and walk in relationship with him. You see, I didn't realize this. I didn't know this for a portion of my life as a Christian. See, I grew up uh, being taught that I was a sinner. I heard about salvation all the time. I remember being at home and we would listen to Southern Gospel before we went to church, and we would go over the Sunday school lesson, those kind of things. And my, my parents taught me, 
you're a sinner in need of a savior. And when I went to church, I heard that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. And I can remember being at my grandparents' house and being taught, you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And my grandma taking me to the side, will you put your trust in Christ? You need your sins forgiven. At like six, seven years old, she's teaching me this and pulling me aside to, to just show me that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And so by the time I'm nine or ten years old, I feel the weight of my sin. I know that I'm a sinner. I can remember crying out to the Lord, I need forgiveness, God. Forgive me of my sin. And I know at that time when I was a child, I trusted in Christ. My sins were wiped away. I was clean. But I didn't know anything else. I didn't know that God had called me not just to have my sins forgiven, but for me to walk with him and to live in this relationship with him. So until the time I was about 16, no one ever told me You've been called to walk and be in the presence of Christ and to know him and have the sweetest relationship and fellowship that there could ever be. And so Jesus is saying here, I called you so that you'll know me, so that you'll know that joy. And so I ask you this morning, do you know? Do you know that joy of fellowship walking uh, with the Son? You've heard the name of Charles Spurgeon mentioned a lot from this pulpit. And uh, uh, you'll get to hear it some more today. Uh, I've been reading a biography of Spurgeon, so he's fresh on my mind. And Spurgeon was a man who loved Christ as very few other men have ever loved Christ. He had this deep experience and passion uh, for the Savior. I wanted you to hear how he described the Savior. Uh, when he was speaking of Jesus, he called him he, my friend, my best, my only friend. I bear witness that never servant had such a master as I have. Never brother had such a kinsman as he has been to me. Never spouse had such a husband as Christ has been to my soul. Never sinner a better savior. Never soldier a better captain. Never mourner a better comforter than Christ has been to my spirit. I want none beside him. In life he is my life, and in death he shall be the death of death. In poverty Christ is my riches. In sickness he makes my bed. In darkness he is my star. In brightness he is my sun. By faith I understand that the blessed Son of God redeemed my soul with his own heart's blood. And by sweet experience I know that he raised me up from the pit of dark despair and set my feet on the rock. He died for me. This, this, this is the root of every satisfaction I have. Christ is my every satisfaction. Do you know him this way? Is he your every joy, your every love, your every satisfaction do you have, that you have? Do you know him and love him like this? Do you want to grow in that love with him? Then you spend time with him. Because you've been called to walk with him, to dwell in that presence with him. Do you want to love him with the unflinching love that the disciples eventually had? Then dwell in his presence abide in him, spend time with him. Do you want to say with Spurgeon that he is my life? That comes when we're dwelling in his presence moment by moment, day by day, knowing the sweetest fellowship that there ever has been. If you're a believer, you're called to this kind of discipleship, this kind of joyful relationship it's sitting in the presence of the master. But that's not all. The second thing that we see that we're called to is found in this passage right here. Let's go back. Uh, look again at chapter 3, verse 14. He appointed the 12 so that, remember the purpose that, they would be with him, number one. And then second, 
that he would send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So number one, they're called to be with him. Number two, they are called to, in order to be sent out. They're called to be sent out. You see, the calling to be a disciple isn't just a calling to sit at the feet of Christ in that joyful presence, although that is certainly part of it. But the calling to be a disciple is a calling to be sent out. It's a call to battle. It's a call to put on the full armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the, the shield of faith, take up the, the sword of the Spirit. Uh, again, Spurgeon, he says that to be a Christian is to be a warrior. The good soldier of Jesus Christ must not expect to find ease in this world. It is a battlefield. When Jesus was calling the disciples, he wasn't calling them to a life of ease just sitting at the master's feet. He was calling them to go and to go out and to take his message to a people that would hate them and that would eventually kill them. Jesus doesn't pull any punches in what he calls them to. Turn over to chapter 6. Flip over to chapter 6 of, of the Gospel of Mark. Now remember, Jesus has just called them in chapter 3, and three chapters later, we find Jesus actually sending them out. And so I want you to hear what Jesus says uh, to these disciples. Uh, starting in chapter 6, verse 7. He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits, and he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey, except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, don't put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you, until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. He says, listen, I've called you to be my disciples, and now I'm sending you out. Don't take anything extra with you. Don't take any food with you. Take your walking stick, but don't even take an extra change of clothes. As you go out, some of these places won't accept you. They won't let you have a place to stay. You may not have anything to eat. If you encounter that, shake the dust off your feet and go on to the next place. This is what it means to be my disciple. Now go out and serve me. He lays it out pretty bluntly, doesn't it? He doesn't pull any punches of the cost of being a disciple, the cost of being sent out. Now flip back to Mark chapter 3. This is what comes just before. It's what we've been talking about. Mark chapter 3. Let's notice what they were sent out to do. Back to verse 14. It says that he called them, he appointed them so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach. So that's the first thing they're sent out to do is to preach. Now unfortunately... Whenever we hear the word preach, what do we think of? We think of this right here. We think of somebody standing behind a pulpit and delivering some message that they prepared, and uh, we think of somebody in, in a suit and a tie and that kind of thing. That's not the picture uh, that's going on in this passage. It's un almost unfortunate that this is the way that it's translated here because there's really a different connotation uh, in the Greek. It's more the idea of proclaiming. It's the idea of, of heralding something. You've experienced something, you know something, and so you kind of shout it out. You want people uh, to hear about that. Uh, when Jen and I found out that we were pregnant, uh, the way we told our parents was we sent them a picture uh, of the ultrasound. And, and so it's the first ultrasound. So if you've seen one of those, it's like, it's like a little dot. I mean, you can't, 
You can't tell anything about it. Only a doctor can say, oh, that's a baby, you know? But that's what we sent to our parents uh, so that they would, uh, so they would know. And so we gave them that gift, and they got it, and they're like, oh, and they're crying and everything that they find out. Uh, but, um, but the thing that, that happened with that is my mom took that little dot, the little blob that you can't tell anything about, and she set it up in her store right at the cash register so that everybody who went by, she could point out and say, that's my grandbaby, as they could look at the little dot that's there. <laughs> you know what that is, what she was doing? She was preaching. She was proclaiming. She was heralding. That's the picture of this word that's used here. It's that kind of, I found this. I know this. Now let me share it with you. It's not coming up here and having some great message to present. It's you saying, I know this. I've experienced this. This is what it is. And so the disciples are called to do that. That kind of proclaiming. That kind of heralding the message that Jesus was telling them. They're called to be sent out to preach, and they're also called and sent out to do ministry. Listen, listen to what they're doing in, uh, in verse uh, 16, uh, or verse 15, and to have authority to cast out the demons. He gave them authority to cast out the demons. Flip back, flip back to Mark chapter 6, kind of going back and forth. This is Mark 6, passage where Jesus actually sends out the disciples. So we want to see him sending out and what they're doing in this passage. So verse 12, they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Jesus said, I'm calling you to be sent out to preach the gospel and to, uh, to cast out demons. And what we do see them, we see them actually going out. They're proclaiming who Jesus is, the, the truth that, uh, that the kingdom is, is at hand. And now they're casting out demons. And I want you to notice here, I want you to notice there's a logical progression going on. We spend time at the feet of the master. We spend time in his presence, knowing the sweetest fellowship that there is. Having his spirit dwell within us, drawing near to him. As we draw near to him, we're filled with his spirit, he sends us out to be used for his purposes for ministry. Here's the thing, and we've got to catch this. We've got to catch this. It is impossible when we have been in the presence of Christ. It is impossible when we have been in the presence of Christ, dwelling in that sweet fellowship, for us to go about our lives and live a humdrum, lackadaisical, just-get-by kind of Christian life. Do you understand that? It is impossible to do that because when we are in the presence of the master, when we are sitting at his feet, drawing near to him and knowing that sweet fellowship, the only thing that we can do is to say, it's not going to be about me. It's not going to be about my life. I'm not going to live my life for the American dream. I'm not going to live just to get by and wait until the die, I, day I die and go on to heaven. I am going to lay down myself now to risk it all for the master because I have been in his 
presence. And that's exactly what happens with the disciples. These are the men who are average, who are ordinary, who are fishermen, who are hated by many people, in the case of Matthew, who said stuff like, oh, what good can come out of Nazareth? These are the men that God took and took around the known world. They healed men. They raised people from the dead. They cast out demons. These are the people who started churches. They planted churches. These are the people who laid down their lives almost to a man and died for the sake of the gospel. These average, ordinary men who had nothing about them to commend themselves. This is what happens when we're in the presence of the master. We say things like Isaiah did when he encountered the holiness of God. Just send me. Just send me. You know what Matthew 28 tells us? Matthew 28 tells us that all of us, if we're disciples, have been sent out with that authority. That we're sent out. That we're sent. We're sent with the authority of the Master to go out and preach and to minister. So here's my question. This is the question I want each of us to really ponder and to think about. Do we long, do we hunger to be used by the Master for His glory? Does it burn in our hearts to be used for His purposes? Why is it that we're so often satisfied with so little when it comes to following the Savior? Why is it that so often we're satisfied with just kind of getting by as Christians? Just going day to day and not really being used for his purposes. Charles Spurgeon had a, a young man come up and, and talk to him. This young man was a preacher. And uh, he had heard about the influence of Spurgeon. Uh, Spurgeon had thousands of people come to Christ during his preaching. And Spurgeon had his sermons circulated all across the world. Millions of people read his sermons. And so there are thousands upon thousands of people who are influenced by his life. And this young man who is a preacher saw this and said, I want to have some kind of influence in my preaching as well. And so he asked Spurgeon, how, how does this happen in your life? How are you used so much of God? And Spurgeon looked at him and said, well, well son, do you expect God to, uh, to bring conversions when you preach? Every time that you preach? And, and the young man said, no. No, I don't expect that every time I preach. And Spurgeon looked at him and said, well, that is why you do not see those conversions. Because you don't expect it. You don't desire it. You, you're, you're not longing for God to use you in, in, in a powerful way. And so when was the time, when was the last time you really hungered? When you sat down and said, God, use me for your purposes. Use me for your glory. And I don't care what circumstance it is that you're in life, whether you're eight years old and just became a believer, or whether you're 80 years old and have been a believer for 70 years, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, a dad who's working, whether you are retired, whatever the circumstance, situation is in your life, when was the last time you hungered and said, God, I just desire for, for you to use me for your purposes? Spurgeon, when he was... Uh, uh, asked by somebody, what was the greatest influence in your life? Uh, he said, my mother and the truth of the gospel. 
Moms, when was moms, when was the last time that you longed and said, God, I just want you to use me and the life of my child for your purposes, that you'll raise up my son or daughter to be a godly man or woman. Dads, when was the last time you just hungered and longed, God, use me that way in the life of my child? I was in Colonial Village, and we were passing out some flyers uh, just, a, uh, <clears throat> just last Sunday uh, to invite people to, uh, uh, to our backyard Bible clubs. And when I was there, it's, it's almost like you can feel the lostness there. It's almost like you can feel the darkness that's, that's around the lives of people there. And, and so I wonder, is there anybody who hungers and desires and says, God, use me to take the gospel to those people who are in darkness? Do we hunger? Do we long for that? Now here's the thing. I don't want us to feel guilty about this because I can guarantee that there's every single one of us in this room who are believers can look at ourselves and say, I could be doing more. Or who can look at our lives and say, you know, I, I see days that go by when I'm, just, when I'm just getting by. I don't want us to be motivated by guilt. Guilt doesn't work. What I want us to be motivated by is that we have a king who's gone before us. We have a king who has led the way. We have a king who has taken you and me if we're believers and called us and said, I summon you to myself so that you will walk with me, so that you will know me, and I summon you to go out. But we don't have a king who has said, just go out. We have a king who has gone before us. We have a king who has said, I walk beside you. We have a king who has laid down his life for us. We have a king who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That is the motivation for us as disciples, that we have the king going before us. So I ask you, do you long, do you hunger to be used in a way that cannot be explained by anything other than God? Francis Chan, a, a pastor in uh, California, now he's a church planner, says, I don't believe God wants me or any of his children to live in a way that makes sense from the world's perspective, a way I know I can manage. I believe he is calling me and all of us to depend on him for living in a way that cannot be mimicked and cannot be forged. Do you hunger to live in that kind of way in service to the master? Uh, so this morning, I, I really don't have like this three-point list of things you need to do. I don't have all this list of now here's what you need to go do. Really all I have is that question. You've been summoned as a disciple to the sweet fellowship and dwelling with him, you've been summoned to be sent out. So do you long, do you hunger to be used of him for his purposes, for his glory, for the sake of Christ the King? If you, if you don't have that desire within you, if, if you sense that in your life it's kind of, kind of grown cold in your following, you know what the answer to that is? Be in his presence. Dwell with him more. Draw near to him. Because it's impossible when we're in the presence of the Savior to look at our own lives. When we're in the presence of the Master, our, our only cry can be like Isaiah. God, just send me. Use me for your purposes. Let's pray.
God, we thank you that you have called us unto yourself. We recognize your sovereignty in our lives. That if we have salvation, it's because you worked in us. And it's not our doing. God, help us to know the joy of just intimate fellowship with you and walking with you, communing with you day by day. May we have that kind of sense of love and knowledge of you that Spurgeon had that when he said, you are my all in all in life, you are my life and death, you are the death of death. God, let us not be satisfied with just getting by each day. God, give us a hunger to be used of you, whatever our life situation is in our families, in our work situation, backyard Bible clubs, whatever it is, God, give us a hunger to be used of you where you place us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.